It's, it's not a shocking statement to start off by saying that we all value things differently, don't we? You can almost pick a subject that uh, you're somewhat passionate about, and depending upon how much you value um, aspects of that uh, depends on kind of where you end up. Last week after the service, um, Casey and I took our oldest son, William, to look at colleges. And you learn very quickly when you go and start looking at colleges that people value things differently. Even as I had conversations with some folks, people wanted to get in conversations about, um, and do not answer this question as I say it, because <laughs> it'll show, uh, should you go into debt to send your child to college? Should they take out loans? Should they not take out loans? Should they even go to college at all? Should they just learn a trade and go into the world? You see, we all value things differently. Certainly, as we were on these college campuses, the colleges valued things differently as we heard all of their pitches about the different things that they offered and the different things that they valued. If we start to think about values and why we value certain things over others, we real quickly get into our worldview. How we view the world determines what we value, the lens that we look through, uh, the, the things of, that, that are going on in our hearts and in our minds, the, the things that we, we value are intimately connected with our worldview. I mean, think for a minute if you were a, let's take my situation and say all of a sudden I was a parent in Ukraine. Might I be thinking about college and education a little differently? I think I would. One of the universal truths that we see when we start talking about value and the things that we value is that we are, we are programmed in such a way in our society that we put our money and resources towards the things that we value, don't we? I mean, some parents save up a ton of money because they so value education that they want to spend a lot of money. They don't want to spend the money, but they're willing to spend a lot of money to get their kids educated in the best way possible. You follow the money and you see where someone's value is, where someone's values lie. And, and we see that not only in education, but some people, I'm one, I value time away, and so we spend money on getting away, getting on vacation. Some people value giving to certain organizations because they value those organizations and what those organizations stand for. We can look at where we spend our money and our resources and our time and our efforts and we can really see what we value. Now, today, today, as we look at this text, as you heard Nick read today, we see two people that value two different things. And what we're going to see is we see these two people valuing two different things. We see them spending resources on what they value or 
in one case, we'll see, trying to gather more resources because his value was himself. And as I've been looking at this text, one of the things that has just been going on in my head and one of the things that I've just been wondering a little bit is that as Mark was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Mark was compiling this gospel, as he was arranging this gospel, and I just wonder, it just, just makes me wonder a little bit if the Olivet Discourse, the past two weeks as we have looked at Jesus' narrative on what the world is going to look like until he comes again, the chaos, the wars, the rumors of wars, brother turning against brother, families turning against families, being persecuted, false Christ, just this chaos, this turmoil. I just wonder, as I am studying this text, if we're not supposed to have this in our minds as we are looking at this text this morning. If, if, in, if we believe what Jesus said in chapter 13 of the Olivet Discourse, I think it should shape our values. I think it should draw a distinction in us of, Lewis, are you going to be someone who so values this world and the things of this world that are passing away? Or, or are you going to value the right things? I think this is supposed to be in our minds as we are looking at this text. As we are asking ourselves, do we trust in the words of our Savior about the future? Do we hope in what Christ tells us to hope in? Do we live for what Christ would have us live for? Would it change the way you thought about this world if you truly believe that your only hope is Christ? Would it change what you valued if you truly believed, if your worldview was shaped by the reality that Christ is the only hope in the fallen world? It's fitting it's fitting as we're going through the Gospel of Mark and we see Jesus at the time of we're just a couple of ways from his, from his death and his burial and his resurrection. We're only a couple of days away from this. And it's fitting that we find Jesus where we find him this morning. It's fitting that we find him where in this text where Mark places him. It's the Passover we see in verse 1. It's the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And they were the, the, the culmination of this was two days away. And if you've been with us, you know we've said over and over that there were many people that were in Jerusalem. Some people say about 100,000. Uh, I think some exaggerated estimates give, put it over a million people in Jerusalem. The reality is, is what we need to know is that there were a lot of people in Jerusalem. There was a lot of fanfare. We, we, they are working towards the culmination of this feast of these days of this celebration and they are celebrating the reality of what happened to God's people Israel in Egypt 
where Israel was under slavery. They were in bondage. They were they were under the rule of Pharaoh. And and we all know what happened, that God brought along these plagues and these these curses. And at the end, the last one was the Passover. And the Israelites were to celebrate the Passover as a commandment year after year, celebrating God's faithfulness to deliver them out of Egypt. And it's this has been our setting for a while. And it's isn't it no wonder? Isn't it a coincidence that at this time, when they are celebrating the Passover, they are making preparations at this moment as we read this text for in two days for a lamb to be slaughtered and eaten as remembrance of when God delivered his people that at this very moment, the lamb of God, the lamb of God is what we read in this text. God's son, Jesus, is being prepared for his sacrifice. Where they are celebrating the reality that God brought them out of Egypt and he promised to deliver them uh, finally in the future, that at this very moment of this very celebration, that God is preparing his son to not only get his people out of bondage, he's doing far more than that. He's he's destroying sin and the curse of sin. He is making a way. He is delivering his people. He is delivering all that would put their hope and trust in him, delivering them not from the bondage of some foreign country, but from the bondage of sin and death. That this is what God is doing. And as this festival is working towards a climax, what we're going to see is that this passion narrative is working towards this climax as well. And what we see in the text is that there is a plan in motion. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. And if you've been with us, this isn't the first time that we have heard of these religious folks trying to destroy Jesus. We've heard about it through the text. And in fact, it has intensified so much so that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, as we read in chapter 11, as he went into the temple and cleansed the temple, we have this in chapter 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then as Jesus was in the temple and gave the parable of the vine growers that we looked at a couple of months ago, where he was clearly pointing and rebuking these religious leaders, notice verse 12, and they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left and went away. And so this is no surprise that they were seeking, they were seeking again. They're continuously seeking to get him and to destroy him and to put him to death. But notice in verse 2. Notice in verse 2, a theme that we've also had throughout the past couple of weeks. They were seeking to kill him, but they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So what we see is that tensions are rising Jesus is going to his death. The city is full of people. 
And what would you expect Jesus to be doing? I think if you've been with us, you expect Jesus to be doing what we find him doing in this text. While he was in Bethany at a home of Simon the leper reclining at the table. Now, it's interesting, we don't know a lot about some of the players in this. Like, we have no idea who Simon the leper was. We assume it was somebody that Jesus healed because all of him and his disciples were in his house and that the leper was in the city. So we assume that he was someone who was formerly a leper. And so we're assuming that Jesus maybe healed this man. And isn't it just like Jesus, as we have studied in this gospel, on his way to give his life for us, that he's here in Bethany at the home of this leper. And that he's eating with him. And it's at this moment, as he's here, that this woman just burst in and anoints him with perfume. Now, Mark doesn't name the woman. And I think that's significant, that in Mark it's an unnamed woman. John tells us it's Mary. But for our purposes... I want to follow with what Mark is doing here. That Mark says this is an unnamed woman. Mark doesn't give her a name. And so this woman just burst into this house. And I don't want us to miss the point. I think a lot of times when this passage is read, we miss the point. The point of this passage is not just to focus on this woman and this marvelous thing that she does. That is what we are supposed to do. But the point of this text in Mark is that we are supposed to compare and contrast two people. Again, in the book of Mark, we have what we have called, what others have called, a Mark and sandwich. Do you remember what this is? Mark uses this literary device to where he begins to tell a story. Then all of a sudden he tells a different story and then ends the first story. So we have this nice sandwich. And as we look at this, we see we've already read the verses Jesus was here, it was Passover, the the religious leaders were seeking how to seize him, take him by stealth and kill him. And then if you look down at the end, the culmination of this passage in verse 10 and 11, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief, chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. And so what we have, we have this sandwich of Seeking to destroy Jesus. We have this woman who comes in and puts this perfume all over Jesus' body. And then at the end we have Judas going to the chief priest to destroy him. And so when we look at this passage, what we are supposed to do is to look at Judas and to look at this unnamed woman and compare and contrast. I've already mentioned this, but you can fill in the blank here. If you're truly wanting to know what motivates somebody, we follow the what? The money. If you truly want to look at an organization or uh, a college and you want to know what is it they value, we follow the what? Follow the money. In this text... If we truly want to see what we're supposed to see, we can do the same thing. We can follow the money and we can see where each of these peoples, where their heart is and what they are after. And one of the things I want to make sure that we always say, 1 Timothy 
chapter 6, verse 10, doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but it says that the love of money is the root of all evil, right? It's what we do with the money. It's how we use it. It's, it's what the desires of our heart are. It's interesting. I'm always amazed, and these stories are all around us, and you all could come up here and share these type of stories of maybe relatives that you have or people that you know who their goal in life was to accumulate, 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 and then they die, and there's this accumulation of money and goods and resources, and then they're dead. Almost seems wasteful, pointless. But there's something in here that I think we all can relate to. Don't we look at money as security? Don't we think of building a big enough nest egg so that we can have safety, security? If we're truly honest, don't a lot of us look at money and look at the accumulation of money as something that when we get to this certain amount, we'll be satisfied. We'll be happy. Our stress levels will be lower. We all struggle with this to some degree. And I think this passage is here to confront us. And it's not the first time that we're confronted in this way. We just studied the poor widow who was in the temple. And you remember what this poor widow did. She had two coins. And she gave both coins. And Jesus calls his disciples and says, watch this. Look at this. Look at how she's worshiping. And when we studied that passage we compared her to the rich young ruler who wanted to come and he wanted to follow Jesus. And when Jesus says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, he walked away. The text says because he was very wealthy, we know that what is meant by that is because he couldn't fathom letting go of his safety, his security, what satisfied him in order to follow Jesus. So we get this contrast with this widow. Today, today we get this same sort of contrast. Look at verse 3. While he was in the home in Bethany, in, in the home of Simon the leper, this woman comes in with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. Mark and, and, and the other gospel writers that recount this story, they go overboard so that we know, so that the reader knows that this just isn't going to the medicine cabinet and getting some bottle of perfume and coming to Jesus. This is very costly. This is pure nard. This, was, this perfume was made from a from East Indian plant. In verse 5, it tells us that this perfume would have been worth 300 denarii. One denarii was a day's worth of work. If you work six days a week, we could look and you can do the easy math. Even people like me can do this type of math. And what we see is that this perfume was a year's worth of wages. 
And a question pops up that we don't really know the answer to. And that is, what is this woman doing with this very expensive jar of perfume? We don't know. But as we look at verse 8, Jesus says, she has done what she could. When we look at this phrase, she has done what she could, she's done what she can, it denotes to us that she has given all that she has. Some think that this perfume would have been an inheritance. That it would have been passed down to her. It would have been a safety net to her. When in emergency break or sell. Maybe it was a dowry. Maybe she was holding that for, for, for when she was to get married and she was to give that away. And that was her token, you know, out of a life of a single person into being married, into being, you know, finding security there in a husband like it would be in this day and age. Maybe it was her nest egg. In today's terms, maybe it was her Roth IRA. Maybe this was a really expensive CD that was given to her by her mother or father. Maybe it was her 401k. Maybe this was her emergency fund, as Dave Ramsey likes for us to have. Don't miss this. She came in with this costly perfume and she broke the vial, and poured it over his head. In John, we have her pouring it on his feet, and I think what we see is that there was so much perfume that when she poured it on his head, it just went all over his whole body. But what I want you to see, she had this bottle, this vial, this alabaster vial, and it would have a skinny neck, and she broke it, which meant... Her intention was to use it all. She's not holding anything back. She's breaking it and she's using it all. She's giving it all. She's pouring it out all over him. Just like the poor widow who had two coins and she gave it all. This is what she was doing. Now imagine you were there. Can you imagine being there? You're here. You're reclining at the table. You're eating. And all of a sudden this woman just bursts into the house. Not only was this unconventional, but this would have been out of step with the days and the times. A woman didn't just come and burst into a house like this. A woman didn't just come and start pouring perfume on a man. This would have probably been seen as scandalous. But she burst into this house with no regard for any of the cultural norms and she breaks this bottle and can you imagine the smell that it dominates everything. It fills the room. You see, this is not worship as usual. This is extravagant worship. 
This is the kind of worship that makes us uncomfortable. This is all in. All in. It's devotion. We see her devotion to Jesus. We see that her hope is in Jesus. We see that her security is in Jesus. We see her value. Who is her treasure? It is obvious. It's Jesus. She's coming to Him and she's giving Him everything. Notice Jesus' response. In verse 6, He tells them that she has done a good thing. And then in verse 8 and 9, She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And then we see in verse 9, Truly I say to you, these are these words that Jesus uses when He's wanting us to pay attention. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That Jesus points and says, you don't understand the significance of what this woman is doing. This type of devotion, this type of worship, this is the right way to worship the Savior of the universe. And everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, this devotion, this kind of worship is going to go along with it. So that you should know, that you understand what a heart that truly sees and understands who Jesus is, that that heart beats and desires and values Christ alone. And as you know, not everyone in this room valued Jesus. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? Wasted. Does it not blow your mind that in this moment where this devotion and this worship has taken place right in front of them, that some could utter the words that this perfume has been wasted on Jesus. Now, there's this silly little debate about oh, you could have sold it and you could have given it to the poor. But that's not really what was going on here. Whoever, we know one, but whoever else was indignant and saw this and were grumbling and used the word wasted, it wasn't really about giving anything to the poor. It was something wrong with their heart. And this woman's devotion brought whatever was wrong with their heart to the surface. 
Look at verse 5 and 6. This perfume may have been sold for over 300 denarii and money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? For she has done a good deed. You will always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Who valued the poor more than Jesus? No one. Jesus still values the poor. We should value the poor. That's not the point. The point that we learned from John's gospel was that Judas was a thief. He cared nothing about the poor. All he cared about was money. And when he saw this money in his mind being wasted on Jesus, it made him indignant and angry. This is the man. This is the man that would sell out Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And we don't know the exact value of 30 pieces of silver in this day, but what we do know is that 300 denarii far outweigh 30 pieces of silver. Can you even imagine? He was one of the 12. For three years, he had been with this man. Can you imagine what he saw? He saw people healed. He saw demons cast out of people. Can you imagine what he heard? He heard the very words of life from the co-creator himself. Who spoke and the waves were silent. Who taught the very truths of eternity. Right in front of him. Not only that, but when Jesus was feeding the 5,000 people, remember it was the disciples that were handling the fish and the loaves. He had a front row seat to all of this. And yet, and yet, when it came to this woman, and when it came to her worship, he looked and said, you're wasting it. He watched Lazarus come alive. This woman came forward. It bothered him. Because her focus, her center, was on Jesus and his was on himself. We pursue what we value. This woman was pursuing Jesus and Judas was pursuing money. This woman burst in and gave all that she had in worship. And Judas looked at this and he asked the same question that I think that we would ask. Would I do that? Would you do this? Would you go to 
the bank or your investment broker and take out all of your safety, all of your security, all of the money you're saving up for college for your kids or kids, all the money that you're planning on spending on college. Would you do this? Now we begin to understand. When we see somebody do something like this, it challenges our heart. And one of the things that we do is that we get defensive and we start saying things like, oh, how foolish is that? Like, what are they going to do in three years? 65 isn't that far away. In this moment, these men and some men in this room were exposed. And in this moment, many of us are exposed. Many of us are exposed. The danger, the danger, when we start to entertain this question and when we get exposed like this the danger is that it begins to display is that Lewis more often than not is at the center of what Lewis values this is the world that Lewis far too often lives in and isn't it silly and tragic and destructive We have just learned from the mouth of Jesus that this world is fading. This world isn't going to last. The things of this world are nothing compared to the value of him and knowing him. And yet, so often, so often we find ourselves chasing the pursuits of this world and unwilling to be a worshiper. Last week, our passage ended with these verses. Therefore, be on alert, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on alert. And the tragedy is, and we see it in this text, is that we are so often sleeping. We're not on alert. It's not even in our purview of who Jesus is and why he matters and that we're not even living our life for him. So we're not alert. We're asleep. Christians, so much of the time right now, we're asleep at the wheel and we get lured into these other meaningless activities. That or we're intoxicated on the pleasures of this world so much so that we're just waiting for our next fix there's an irony in this text did you find it ironic at the beginning of this message in verse 2 when we were talking about the chief priests and the scribes they were seeking to seize him by stealth and kill him for they were saying not during the festival Isn't it ironic that it didn't matter what these chief priests and scribes wanted, that when God's timing is fulfilled, it's going to happen? 
And guess when the betrayal happens? During the festival. And I think the irony is meant to point out to us that God's timing always happens. And so the irony that I want to bring you into is that no matter how much you think you can control your life and the things of this world by setting your heart on things that you think give you security, when God says it's time, it's time. And His Word tells us that we are to live in a posture of being ready. This woman was ready. Her posture is readiness. Mark this. Mark this. We do not value him like we should. And this is not a sermon about three steps, how to, three steps for you to prove how much you value Jesus. We're not sending you home to get your best perfume to come here and to pour out. We're not sending you to the bank. The goal here is not about action steps. The goal here is to get you to look at your heart. That's the goal. It's not to manipulate. And maybe you are here and you've been like Judas, that you've been around Jesus for a long time, but you don't value him. He is not your treasure. And the greatest news in the world is that maybe today for the first time as you have heard this text, that you can relate and you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, something's going on inside of me and I feel this pull towards Jesus that I've never felt before. If that is who you are, if that's where you are, please get in contact with me or Gary or one of the elders. We would love to talk to you about that. I think more of us are in this space where we desire Him, that means the Holy Spirit is alive and working in us, the fact that we desire, we want to be more like this woman. We desire it, but we're holding back. We're holding back. And I just want to challenge myself and you by asking a question, and the question is this, what would it look like if you leaned into the desire and not away from it? What would it look like if you leaned into the desire and not away from it? It would be wild. Extravagant. The world would think you were weird. And I long for a day. I long for a day where the church, where the church, within the church, it's normal to desire Jesus at that level. I long for that day. I long for the day to where in my own heart, more often than it does now, that I long for and desire Jesus and to worship Him at this level. And my prayer is, and what I am asking you to pray through as I'm praying through this, do you long for this as well? I 
I long for the day where we're not asking how much it costs. But we're scouring the house for what we can give. And it's not about money. It's about us, again, being all in. All of you given to all of him. Would you pray with me? Would you pray that your desire grows in this direction? I need it. So thankful for the story of this woman, as challenging as it is. I'm so thankful for this story. I'm so thankful that everywhere this gospel is preached, that this woman and her worship will be made much of because we need it to examine our own hearts and our own lives. He is worthy. He is worthy. Will you recognize it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, will you awaken our souls this morning? Would you awaken us to the beauty of your Son and the reality that we don't have to worry or fret or be weighed down by the concerns of this evil, decaying, dying world because you have secured something for us that's much greater. You have secured a life that we get to spend with you for eternity. And you don't leave us and forsake us now. You have given us your spirit so that we can walk in this world that's not our home in such a way that displays to the world how much we value you. God, grow the desire in us. Grow the desire in us. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.